Welcome, everyone. I'm Mike. And I'm Steven. This is Re-Oscar, where we pick an Academy Award year, look at what they got right, where they went horribly wrong, give you some history, perspective, and useless facts along the way. Today, we're looking at the movies of 1982. So we're looking at the 1983 Oscar. So the movies of 1982, I feel like 82 was like just an incredibly strong year for film overall. Everything was really good. And everything was really long. Really, really long movies. <laughs> Definitely among the uh, Oscar nominees. But I think that you have like some seminal touchstone pictures of like every genre. That's what's interesting too. You end up with kind of like a key horror movie. Uh, if you include, if you count Poltergeist as a horror movie, which I do because it scared me to death when I was a kid. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, clearly we both agree that First Blood is like the touchstone of the 80s action movie. So, you know, that's 82. And Rocky, the the quintessential sports formula for the 80s. And of course, Rocky 3. Yeah. Which should have won Best Picture as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> that's that's a whole other conversation. Well, you'll be able to make your case later in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a nomination, I don't understand. And it, it really is one of the few years where they they seem to take comedy seriously in the modern time i think uh i didn't really research this very much but uh having tootsie in the conversation uh and victor and, victoria which is and victor huge. victoria it, maybe comedy is only taken seriously when there's cross-dressing involved um <laughs> i don't know but uh good year for comedy good year for just about everything like you said so and and a, a lot of uh stuff going on that year w- what was happening in 1982 yeah i, I was gonna say uh 82 is important for a couple of touchstone reasons as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it was the year that the first six-inch G.I. Joe dolls were released, but the original <laughs> 13, which is pretty interesting to me. Yeah. Those smaller G.I. Joe dolls. And uh, Commodore 64 was released in 1982, which kind of, it wasn't the first personal computer, but kind of the personal computer that everyone bought for the first time. Did that connect to your television? I don't remember because I didn't have enough money to get one. So I, I didn't either. Uh, whether or not it did that. But I know that a lot of my friends had it. I do not yeah. remember. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so it was kind of like the first computer that people could buy at a regular store as opposed to like a computer store. And it brought like personal computers to the masses. But I think it's interesting. Yeah. But the other thing, we're talking about how good 1982 was for film. It was really strong for TV as well. It turns out Family Ties premiered in 82. Cheers premiered in 82, Sing Elsewhere premiered in 82, and most importantly, Knight Rider premiered in 82. Wow. That's quite a slate of shows. I had no idea. Yeah. So just like 82 was just a, a strong year, uh, well, a strong year for talking cars, but a strong year for just entertainment in general. That's interesting. That's, uh, wow. And and I was eight years old, and it, so it was... Uh, all of that was just downloading into my brain. And, and and there were some pretty great movies outside of the Oscars that year too. Like uh, one, one of my favorites, actually, The King of Comedy, Scorsese's, uh, I guess his follow-up to Raging Bull, yeah. which was uh, different in tone, but also kind of similar. Very dark, very funny. Um, similar in tone, different in style. That's, that's probably the way you would say it. Yeah, a little funnier. Um, but, and then of course it would go on to be remade by Todd Phillips as Joker. Uh, 
down the road. Um, but yeah, also the thing, John Carpenter's uh, second movie with Kurt Russell, second of three in that trilogy. And uh, boy, that film just sticks with me. It, it's so good. It might have been one of the first films I've seen with those kind of special effects and and uh, just that kind of terror to it. Yeah, I, I again, totally underrated when it came out and missed and just kind of went by the wayside. But I mean, it, it's almost like a sister movie to, to the first Alien, where it, it's similar in, in the, the way that it unfolds and the dread that you feel about it. And, and uh, it, it really works. But no one appreciated it at the time that it came out. Yeah. And then you get into action and you already referenced one of these films, but uh, there were two pretty, well, actually there were three pretty important action films that year, uh, which really kicked off the rest of the decade. Of course, the two from Stallone, Rocky Three, and First Blood, and then uh, Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, so it was a great year for Oscars, but boy, was it a great year for action too. And it was a great year for eight-year-old kids. Exactly. Um, sadly, none of them nominated for uh, Oscars, but maybe okay, should The other important movie to me, when we're talking about good movies in 82, movies that I think are important. So Night Shift came out in 82, which I think yep. is, is also kind of criminally overlooked. It was actually the directorial debut of Ron Howard. It's the first right. movie he ever did. Uh, it was the first movie performance of Michael Keaton. So that was yep. his movie. And it had Henry Winkler as the star of the movie playing a completely different character from what we would know him as for the Fonz. <laughs> it turns out that the character he plays in Night Shift is much closer to how he was in real life. Yeah. Close to the Fonz, which was a great acting job on his part. But it was a complete tone shift for him. But Michael Keaton is fantastic in it. It's probably the most entertaining movie you could ever make about morgue workers who become pimps. I think that's fair to say. It is a it is a one of one genre, and somehow I'm always impressed with movies that walk a tightrope and actually make it work because those are really difficult things to pull off. And Night Shift it could definitely go wrong in a lot of ways in the wrong hands, but it walks this fine line without ever crossing over into being gross or terrible or even uncomfortable. And, and I, I think it really works. I, I always loved it. Yeah, I agree. Very underrated. I think if we look back on it, it's it's uh, definitely very important in the year and and going forward, it, it informed a lot of other things that that uh, would come after it. Um, I don't know that there were any other movies that really jumped out at me that we're not going to talk about in the Oscar race here, other than uh, a couple guilty pleasures that we'll get to at the end. But was there anything else that stood out to you uh, outside of the well, Oscar movies? I'll keep this one out of guilty pleasures because I don't think it's guilty pleasure. Death Trap came out in 82, yeah. which is a movie I recommend to everyone, especially anyone who liked Knives Out. Those mystery box movies, those self-contained mystery box type movies, what they call them, there aren't that many. And again, a genre that's kind of hard to pull off. You really have to have a really tight script and it, it has to be really well acted to work. And Death Trap only really has three actors in it. Uh, it was adapted from the stage. I just really have always loved it. I think it's it's a, a really great movie. Uh, great performance by Christopher Reeve, who was kind of in the middle of his Superman uh, run at that point. So definitely something that you wouldn't expect from him at the time. And I'm sure I watched it because it had Superman in it. I'm sure that's the reason that I ended up watching it. 
Um, yeah. And I won't spoil anything for anybody if they've never seen it, but if you see him as Superman and then see Death Trap, it's, it's definitely uh, jarring to, to see the difference. Uh, Michael Caine is, is wonderful and it. it's just a really, really good movie. Fun and surprising. Yeah, and it, it uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, one of two for the year. The other one we'll talk about in a bit. I didn't realize that that was based on a book by Ira Levin, who wrote Rosemary's Baby. Which, uh, but yeah, that, uh, I haven't seen Death Trap. You've recommended it to me before, and I uh, dropped the ball on it. But I think it's going to be the first thing I watch after this week's podcast. We'll forgive you because I know that you've watched Rocky Three more than once, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> probably in the last week actually <laughs> um okay so that's everything that's not oscar related let's go ahead and get to the things that are oscar related pretty good crop this year as we said and and i think a lot of the nominations are pretty well deserved i don't know that all of the wins are well deserved but uh i think the selections are pretty good so why don't we uh We'll start with Best Supporting Actor, uh, won by Louis Gossett Jr. for An Officer and a Gentleman. But the other nominees were Charles Durning for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, John Lithgow in The World According to Garp, James Mason in The Verdict. Boy, it was so good to see him. He's so awesome. And uh, Robert Preston in Victor Victoria. You know, it was actually pretty tough. I think there's a lot of uh, competition in there, but I went with Robert Preston and Victor Victoria. I just thought it was a an incredible uh, performance and and like very important, very very well done. Yeah, just great all around. And and I think I don't I don't know that James Mason should have won it for the verdict, but I really enjoyed his performance too. Yeah, I mean James Mason at that point in his career was in the James Mason kind of being James Mason, and you just yeah. enjoyed seeing James <laughs> Mason. So that's what makes it hard to to award it as an acting performance. It's just it's like James Mason. The wrong anesthesia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for yeah. me, I will say, I mean, first, I just want to say that I've watched The World According to Garp, which I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. And I think the movie is a complete mess. Yeah. So get out of the way. And I think that in some ways, Lithgow is kind of the, the center that holds in a really messy movie that is jumps around in genres and, and the tone to me is completely wrong and it, it, it didn't work for me in a lot of ways yeah um, it's amazing that it was so popular when it came out i think that that garp is a good example of like a fan service movie where i think if you read the novel which was very popular mm -hmm. the movie would make more sense to you and i think if you just watch it as a movie i think without the background of the book it, it comes off just the tone shifts it will, will give you whiplash so in a lot of ways i think that the lithgow is kind of the heart of the movie and holds it together and his performance is, is truly wonderful and again, as, as we keep talking about this, this theme of kind of cross-dressing and transgender, I, I was really taken with how progressive movies in 1982 were. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so really I, shocking to revisit that and, and realize more so than today, probably. Yeah, that's what's most shocking. And, and in terms of the character that the Lithgow plays, I mean, it's not played for laughs in any way. It's not, it, it's not mocked or seen as strange the character is just there and in person's transgender and it, it covers it briefly and just moves on but yeah. the character itself is is i think the best character in the movie so i enjoy the performance but i don't really think that it would have won 
for me, it was neck and neck between Robert Preston and Louis Gossett Jr. And I really loved Robert Preston's performance in that. Yeah. Um, I just think he's one of those actors, almost like James Mason, that whatever you see him, you enjoy him. He's yeah. an enjoyable person to watch on screen. And, and I think you see that he knows that you know, that you enjoy watching him and he's right. giving you. There's just these little things where it's almost like he's winking at you through the screen uh, in his character. But also I, I feel like in reality, I just, maybe that's just me. I don't, I don't want to make it seem as though I think movie actors are talking to me through the screen. I'm not a crazy person, but <laughs> I just feel like Robert Preston knows that he's giving you uh, the performance that you want and he knows it and he's having a good time. I really enjoyed that. That almost is uh, a bit how uh, Peter O'Toole plays his character in my favorite year. Right, which I love as well. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually think that the Academy got it right here. I think Louis, Goss Louis Gossett Jr. is a good choice. And the reason why, and I've said this in the past, that for a supporting actor category, the supporting actor kind of has to steal the focus of the movie. And in truth, Louis Gossett Jr. stole every scene that he was in. I think, again, without him, the movie becomes a lot less watchable. But he is, is the reason almost that you're watching it. No offense to Richard Gere, it's, it's not the greatest of Richard Gere performances. And let's just pause again and say, and remember, the only reason that Richard Gere really had a career was because of bad choices by John Travolta. Let's not forget. <laughs> John Travolta turned down American Gigolo, and he turned down An Officer and a Gentleman, both movies that he could have been in. Wow. So Richard Gere wasn't exactly the strongest lead in, in that movie. Uh, I like Deborah Winger. I think she's a good actress. I have no problem with her. But uh, if you're dealing with the male actors in the movie, I mean, Louis Gossett Jr. just took Richard Gere's lunch money repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't really argue with that. That he really made the movie watchable for me. Yeah. And and you can say the same thing about his follow-up to that Jaws 3D, which uh, <laughs> would come out in 1983. Um, Don't forget my my uh, favorite weird Lewis Gossett Jr. movie, Enemy Mine. We played an alien in that movie. So good. Reteamed with Dennis Quaid two years after Jaws 3D. Yeah. Wow. Maybe that's the duo of the 80s that we need to focus on. Uh, they should have starred in Lethal Weapon. That would have been perfect. <laughs> that seems like a casting miss to me at that point. You could have put them both in that movie. It would have been great. I like that a lot, actually. Well, I'm just this thinking about that now. But, but, uh, real quick before we get off this topic, I really did like all the actors in this category. And we're talking about actors having fun with roles. I mean, Charles Durning in The Best of House in Texas. Again, just a crazy year for uh, taboo topics. I mean, yeah. a movie about Whorehouse, and it's almost, it's played for laughs, and, and it's a really strange movie in a lot of ways based on a Broadway show. But uh, Charles Durning is clearly having the time of his life in this movie and he gets to sing. And his song is great. It's called uh, Sidestep, if I, if I remember correctly. I always love that song. <laughs> I remember listening to that song as a kid. I just really liked it. Uh, so just, you know, him and Robert Preston just having a good time making movies. And I, and I always enjoy that. But I would not give, I would not have given Durning the, the award. But, no. but still, he had two great supporting roles again that year, Team Best of Arts in Texas, and of course the supporting role in Tootsie, yep. which he wasn't recognized for. Yeah, that role in Tootsie was pretty minimal, I think. I mean, not minimal, but maybe not. I mean, if you look at everything that's 
nominated. There are so many good supporting actors that, you know, but yeah, definitely both strong. Yeah, Jack Warden overlooked. I mean, my favorite character actor, one of my favorite character actors, Jack Warden. I mean, who really had a hell of a string of movies starting with all the president's men and he was in Heaven Can Wait and he was in Injustice for All, he was great in, and then he's in The Verdict. And then a couple of years later, he made a TV show called Crazy Like a Fox, which Crazy like a Fox. Watched and everybody hated, but I loved it. Uh, Crazy Like a Fox, go look it up. I'm sure it's not on any streaming service, but it was a good time. Jack Warden. Oh, I'm, I'm Jack very Warden. versed in Crazy Like a Fox. I remember it very well. One of many excellent action TV shows of the 1980s, for sure. It lasted two seasons. What a crime. I, I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, all the action went to the big screen, I guess. Yeah. Bottom line, Jack Warden, he, he uh, would have been good to get a nomination. And, and I'm, I'm all about Jack Warden in the 80s. He, he was a good time. He's just one of those guys that you would see in, in lots of things and just know that you were going to enjoy it. Yeah, he really was just tremendous. I mean, I, I uh, and and in the verdict, that was, I think his second film was Sidney Lumet because he was in 12 Angry Men way back in the 50s. But um, oh, that's right. Just, yeah, boy, he's so good. <laughs> he's just so good. Um, but I guess they only have so many slots. Um, yeah, so 82, I, again, a really good year for kind of old character actors in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I think the 80s are kind of like the end of the run for them for the most part, like the guys from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And that's my favorite thing about watching movies in the 80s, going back and watching them, because you get to see a bunch of that guys. Yep. It's all those that guys that just showed yep. up in tons of movies and you saw them in TV shows and, and they were just in everything. Yeah. No other movies. I mean, Jack Warden being exception because he was just the supreme character actor, but it was just a lot of step below that. Just a lot of those guys that you're like, hey, yep. that guy. Yep. JT Walsh comes to mind as one of them who is just in everything and always so good. Um, all right. I, actually, you know what? I, just just to close it up, I think uh, I think I would put Jack Warden over James Mason in that nomination. You would get no argument. Yeah. If they had a um, special subcategory of actors kind of playing themselves uh james mason <laughs> one hands down and then uh subsequently in the 2000s george clooney would have won that every year but <laughs> yeah it's the the james mason george clooney honorary oscar for playing they yourself name that award. they should have a special side <laughs> award the james mason award for just being yourself in a movie but doing it so well i think that i, I would totally watch the oscars just to see who wins that every year do we mean? Do we need to make up new Oscars for this show? You know what? That's not a bad idea. We, we yeah, I think we might have to do that. Okay. Oh boy, the sky's the limit with that. <laughs> oh man. But moving on to the the Oscars, we do have uh, getting into Best Actor. There's uh, Ben Kingsley for Gandhi took home the trophy. Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie, Paul Newman in The Verdict, and Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. Um, what, what do you think? So my favorite performance to watch was Peter O'Toole in my favorite. Agreed. It, it was just a lot of fun. But look, again, we'll, so we'll get into the Gandhi thing a little bit. I think the thing with Peter O'Toole, I was thinking about this because I, I just, I love that movie. I'd never seen it before. And I, I just really loved it. Um, it felt like more of a Mark Lynn Baker leading role almost. Like, uh, doing his best Albert Brooks impersonation, by the way. Um, but it it really felt like 
more of his movie than Peter O'Toole's to me. So I don't know that I would have put Peter O'Toole in this category, but um, boy, I what think a they probably, I think that what we talked about before, that the supporting actor category was so strong. I think they wanted it to recognize Peter O'Toole's is probably why he was put up for best actor as opposed to best supporting. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So that may be how that ended up working out, but I do agree with you. And Marklin Baker, I mean, he was really good in that movie. And I, I appreciate that he <laughs> says he's doing his best Albert Brooks impersonation, which is pretty true, but it's, it's interesting that he ends up getting moving into TV. So, I mean, my favorite year is the only movie I can remember Marklin Baker really being in before he moves in there. And I remember from Perfect Strangers. So yeah. he plays a similar kind of character, to be honest. Right. Just like Albert Brooks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so so who do you who do you have for this? So I said, love watching Peter O'Toole. Jack Lemon was was really good because you know it's good when actors play against type, where he was not a very likable guy in that movie. Yeah. So something good. you know, expect from Jack Lemon. So he was really good. Paul Newman's Paul Newman. I mean, what are you gonna say? Uh, but so we'll get into the Gandhi thing real quick for a second. Just touch on it for a little bit. Yeah. Was Ben Kingsley good as Gandhi? Well, yeah. I mean, he looked just like Gandhi, felt like a good performance. But it never, to me, I just never feel like it got to the point where you really, where it moved out of mimicry. Right. I just think that because there's so much, the word that always stands out to me when I think of Gandhi is reverence. Mm -hmm. There's just so much reverence about everything about that movie uh, and the people making it because you're dealing with, I mean, a historical figure who is incredibly important. But I think the reverence ends up hurting that because yeah. if you have too much reverence for the subject, you end up kind of making like a travelogue and a mimicry kind of movie as opposed to really diving into a character. And I don't think Ben Kingsley's performance ever kind of gets deeper than the surface of just kind of showing you Gandhi. Right. And they sort of preface the film with that, with like a disclaimer about how you can't capture a person's full life and... Yeah. Talk about self-importance. I mean, it's one of the most self-important opening screens I've ever seen of a movie. Yeah, when I saw that, I hadn't, I'd seen Gandhi many years ago, but when I saw it again, I thought, wow. Yeah. You really take this seriously. Yeah, and, and that's the thing I get that they would want to, but if you take it way too seriously when you're doing a biographical movie, it can kind of just end up being a living history book without really giving you something extra. And I don't think Ben Kingsley's performance moved past just kind of imitating Gandhi. So for that reason, I, I don't really think that he deserved the Oscar. Although, I mean, I appreciate the performance. I'm not saying it's bad by any means, but just a little too reverent for me. A little controversial too. I mean, they didn't take it so seriously that they didn't cast a British actor. Like, uh, I don't know if this performance would fly today. Uh, it wouldn't, um, but it, and and because of that, I don't, I don't. Uh, I mean, you have to keep it in the time it was made, but I, I don't think, uh, I don't know if I can do that. I, I think it's just so indicative of Hollywood to cast, you know, the white guy <laughs> or the white woman, and and uh, for something that tried to be so authentic, it, it I don't know, that kind of fell short for me, and and. Uh, um, but anyway, uh, I derailed you there. So who was your pick? I enjoyed being derailed. Not a problem. Uh, I think Dustin Hoffman wins. If we're talking about the best performance by an actor, I mean, again, you have to look at, at the role itself. And 
how easily that can become caricature and how ridiculous it can be if someone handles it incorrectly. And the thing I find interesting about it is that Dustin Hoffman's uh, reputation is of being a very difficult actor. Mm -hmm. So I think that part of it serves him. I don't think he's acting all that much in the early (laughs) movies, but he's so good at it. But the whole, again, the whole tightrope of of playing that character in the way that he plays it uh, with heart and never kind of turning it into caricature and really selling it, selling the emotion as Michael Dorsey and selling the emotion as Dorothy Michaels. And I will always say that the reveal at the end with the live television taping is is one of my favorite scenes of, of any movie that I that I've seen. I just love it. I, I it's really great. I, I, yeah, it, it's and that's all him. It's just so well done. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm in 100 percent agreement. I mean, I think there is a little bit of like 80s absurdity to it, but I think he plays it so well um and and just covers all the emotional bases, which is a testament to how good he is in it. And and uh I I would say for me a close second would be Paul Newman just because I love Paul Newman. And I think uh, revisiting the verdict this week, I, I I was just blown away by him. And I, I haven't seen a Paul Newman film in a, quite a while. So maybe I was just uh, remembering how good he was. But um, yeah, that aside, I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, Dustin sometimes Walker. you get hurt by being Paul Newman. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're just used to Paul Newman being great in things. So yeah. In a way, it might be overlooked for that reason, but you're right. I mean, he holds that movie together. Obviously, it's it's his movie. I, I think Paul Newman with Sidney Lumet directing a David Mamet script is just like, I mean, it's heaven for me. It really is. Just so, so good. So I, yeah. But as good as Dustin Hoffman and Sidney Pollock, uh, probably not. So yeah, Tootsie it is. Dustin Hoffman for sure. Um. All right, let's get let's get into the ladies. Uh, best supporting actress, Jessica Lange wins for Tootsie. Uh, Glenn Close was nominated for The World According to Gar, Terry Gar for Tootsie, Kim Stanley and Francis, and Leslie Ann Warren and Victor Victoria. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this one. I, I think uh, Jessica Lange, boy, she's fine, but. I don't see anything really dynamic about it. I don't see anything all that interesting uh, in the character. I don't mean to step, I'm going to step on you, but but I, I can give you my quick thought on that. Yeah. Because we're stepping on the next category, but I think that they wanted to give Jessica Lange an Oscar for Francis. Right. But they couldn't. And so uh, they gave her one for Tootsie. I think that she's really getting the Oscar for Francis in the guise of Tootsie. That, that, that's my personal opinion. So you think they saw Meryl Streep in Best Actress and they're like, oh, nobody stands a chance. So just give her one for supporting actress. Yeah. Um, well, if that's the case, I think it really does a disservice, at least in my opinion, to Terry Gar and, and Tootsie, who I thought was far more dynamic, far more interesting, um, just a better emotional range and uh, of everybody in this in this category, I think for me, she she should take home the Oscar because I thought she was just sensational. I think what we're seeing here, and we've talked about before, is the kind of dismissal of comedy. It's why Dustin Hoffman doesn't win. Probably why Terry Gar doesn't win. I don't think that the Academy appreciates how hard it is to pull off 
a really good comedic performance with with a bit of drama in it to be able to to carry those things along. Terry Gar's performance is funny, but it is is there's a certain emotional piece to it, and she and she walks all those things really well. Yep. Uh, but I just think that they they don't appreciate how hard it is to do good comedy. Well, at least they got nominations back then. <laughs> Something nowadays they don't even they don't even get it. Um, and, and going forward, you know, to now, I think that, that Terry Gar is is just kind of forgotten about. That she just did a ton of great work in the '80s. She really did. I, I, uh, it's unfortunate because I, I don't think she has an Oscar, does she? Not that I'm aware of. Um, but uh, yeah, boy, she was just sensational. And if not for Jessica Lange and Francis, <laughs> if not for Meryl Streep, really, which we could say every time she's nominated. So Terry Gar gets my pick. Um, who are you picking for this category? So I'll start off by saying Leslie Ann Warren's a bit of a surprise to me. I thought that that performance was a little too broad for my taste, mm-hmm. although it does fit in with the tone of the movie. But it was right. a bit much. I much prefer my Leslie Ann Warren in Clue, which is a similar kind of performance almost, but not really. But it's the right place for it. Yeah, but it was it was a it was a bit much for me. Yeah. Um, I I really liked Glenn Close in in World According to Gart. Here's my problem with World According to Gart. My my main problem out of the gate with World According to Gart. When Gart was made, Robin Williams was thirty, I believe. I believe he was thirty. And we were supposed to believe that a 30-year-old Robin Williams was like 17 at one point in the movie, at the beginning, <laughs> which is difficult. But when it jumps to that point where you know he's 18, 19, and she's his mother, and we know that she was probably, uh, she, had, she was young when she had him, but not that young. Mm-hmm. It'll be you know, late, late teens or early 20s at, at the earliest, because she's a nurse at that point. Um, but at that point that the movie was made, Robin Williams is 30. And I believe that Glenn Close was 34. Mm-hmm. And she's playing his mother as they're both adults. And I just could not shake that watching the movie the entire time. It just felt yeah. like they were a couple. And in no way could she be his mother. Like, I just couldn't get past that. It was way, <laughs> it was way too hard to suspend my disbelief for that. And I think right. that was a serious problem in the movie, amongst other things. Yeah. <laughs> that was a weird one for me. But Glenn Close was good, and the fact that Glenn Close has never won an Oscar still is kind of just uh, a bit much. So, uh, again, we can't retroactively give her one because she hadn't won one subsequently, but I don't think the performance is necessarily strong enough to win. Uh, I actually think that Kim Stanley probably would get my vote. Okay. Because that, you know, the movie Francis, which I had never seen before, mm-hmm. I thought it was a, a really good movie, but the movie basically just hinges on two performances. The entire movie is two performances. It's yep. Jessica Lange and Kim Stanley uh, kind of battling it out with each other. And, and, mm-hmm. and without the foil of Kim Stanley, I don't think Jessica Lange's performance is as good as it is. And right. it was interesting, I was looking at this a little bit and, and found out that they did a lot of workshopping together before they actually filmed the movie. Mm-hmm. They spent like a week together, like a, a, at least a week, maybe longer, uh, like living together and just kind of working out the mother-daughter dynamic, what their relationship would be so that when they were filming the movie, they had this kind of shared memory or how they felt like the dynamic would play out. So it wasn't just in the script. They had done a lot of work ahead of time mm-hmm. to kind of understand how to interact with each other and what that relationship would be like. And you can see all of Kim Stanley, you can see her character's longing 
and how twisted her feeling is towards her daughter and all of this stuff it's not really in the script but you can see it in the way that she plays it yeah i agree it's a it's a great job um better than terry gar probably i don't know it, but, it's tight it's it's a, it's a tough one and and again now i feel like i'm dismissing comedy for, for drama but I, but i, I really, uh, it was something about kim Stanley's performance that was just kind of it was incredibly engaging and just so toxic and crazy but she plays it in such a restrained kind of way that that uh, I was I was kind of mesmerized by it, right? So, so it so it leans towards that. Jessica Lange and Tutsi, yeah, I, I, I don't. She's just kind of there. I mean, she's good and, and she's fine. I have no problem with her performance, but I mean, Oscar worthy, I don't really. I don't either. All right, so we're getting to the end. We have best actress. I think this is pretty much a lock. I don't know that <laughs> we... much to say about this. Yeah, um, it it went to Meryl Streep for Sophie, Sophie's Choice. Uh, the other nominees were Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria, Jessica Lang for Francis, as we just discussed, Sissy Spacek and Missing, and Deborah Winger in An Officer and a Gentleman. I mean, Meryl Streep, you know. <laughs> what else can you say? Yeah, so good. Yeah, it's just uh, you completely believe everything about that performance. Uh, and it's early in her career, so it wouldn't have surprised me if back then people actually didn't think that she was American. Uh, based on that performance, if you'd seen she, it. She was incredibly convincing. I, I read that she learned German for the role. Um, yeah, and uh, her accent was just spot on. Uh, uh, just so powerful. And then there's, <laughs> the only thing I didn't really love about the movie, I, I mean, the flashbacks are like, I don't know, but when she's talking to the camera, it feels like, <laughs> kind of uh i don't know like an like an acting class exercise which kind of freaked me out a little bit and took me out of it but even then even then you can just see how good she is maybe even more so than the rest of the film i mean she's just giving this monologue of with this accent you know and gosh i mean she's meryl streep for a reason <laughs> yeah because if you think about it you know movies where you're focused on someone's face and they're giving a monologue, not easy. People can become bored by that, but she's yeah. so good that you actually find yourself being completely engrossed in it. Yep. So again, that just shows the power of her performance. I want to mention that I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Best Supporting Actor, that again, I think that Best Supporting Actor was probably the strongest category mm -hmm. of the year. And because of that, I mean, Kevin Klein doesn't even get any recognition. Where I think oh, yeah. he's truly great in Sophie's Choice. Absolutely. Very, very good. Um, great performances. And, I, and I'm going to rise to the level of acting against Meryl Streep, who is, who is just uh, being Meryl Streep in that moment. So, and he, and he, and he holds his own completely. So I, so I think it's uh, a overlooked performance by him. I mean, Kevin Klein never gives bad performances. I mean, he's, he's really fantastic, but uh, I was impressed with that performance. And I, again, because I hadn't seen Sophie's Choice. Right. If I didn't remember it, so I felt like I was seeing it for the first time, and I, and I really yeah. enjoyed it. I feel like in the '70s and '80s, maybe they could have taken best supporting categories and and added five more slots. It was really the time of the of the character actor and the supporting role. Um, so I mean, unfortunately, because Meryl Streep was ridiculous, you know, Jessica Lange and Francis, as I said before, any other year, 
if Meryl Streep did not exist, Jessica Lange 100% wins the Oscar for Best Actress that year. And I do think she got Best Supporting Actress as a Constellation Prize because they knew it too. And they were just like, Christ, we, we really can't overlook her completely. That's how good the performance in Francis was. She was really great in it. Uh, Sissy Spacek is, I think, another actress that kind of gets overlooked a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had some really great performances uh, in, in that late 70s, early 80s period. I mean, between yeah. the coal miner's daughter. I mean, she was great in this. Yeah. I don't know what point I'm making here. I just think that Sissy, Sissy Spacek, and as I will continue to uh, tongue tie her name, she should be recognized more. Maybe that's why she's not recognized. People can't say her name fast. I, yeah. I think she did really strong performances and, and she was really great in missing. Yeah, but I think it, it's, boy, I mean, just what a time. What a time for, for actors, <laughs> like, more so than today, you know? Uh, that's why I love doing the 70s and 80s with this because the performances are just always so good and, and there's so many of them. It sounds like an old man as we talk about these things, but uh, I do think there's a certain sense of today because you can do so much more, you do more. So movies are a little more about spectacle and special effects. And yeah. Time in the 80s, without all that stuff, it was about performances. So you're getting better performances because that's what the movies require. Yeah, I think we're catching like the tail end of that new Hollywood era where the studios are starting to come back around and put their spectacle into it. So uh, that's kind of what's great about the 70s and the early 80s, I think. Um, all right, moving on to Best Director. Another controversial one, I think. Uh, Richard Attenborough wins for Gandhi. Uh, other nominees are Wolfgang Peterson for Das Boot, Steven Spielberg for E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Sidney Pollock for Tootsie, and the other Sydney, Sydney Lamette for the verdict. Um, I'll go first on this one just because I think uh, it's such a it's another great category. Although I think the winner is probably the least <laughs> worthy of uh, of the director statue, in my opinion. But uh, Spielberg, of course, fantastic. You know, E.T. amazing, great work with directing young actors. It, it, it just it really is. Uh, quite a job by him. Um, and Sidney Lumet for me is, is, he's one of my favorites. I think he's so good at getting performances. I mean, he comes from stage and TV and I think he's just so good at working with actors and, and getting what he needs from them. Um, but I'm going to go with Sidney Pollock on this for Tootsie because I, I just think, uh, again, great performances really needed to get something special out of Dustin Hoffman and, and he got it. Um, and he has a bit part in it, which I always love. So, <laughs> and I think that's interesting. I'm having a bit part. I wonder if that was actually part of his his directing plan to kind of get in there to help nudge things where he wanted them to be. Well, he has a habit of that, I think, doesn't he? Showing up in things. Yeah, that's true. Why not? But yeah, for me, that was the that was the best director of the year. I think just great picture. So. Again, with, with Gandhi, I think that Attenborough does a fine job, but but again, it doesn't doesn't really come off as anything more than almost like a a documentary or or just a kind of static retelling of the story. There's nothing particularly fantastic about the directing performance, right? I, I, I don't think. I mean, I think Wolfgang Peterson deserves recognition because 
it's very hard to make a submarine movie interesting. <laughs> Especially when it's two and a half hours. The director's cuts like three and a half hours. And it was actually a, a TV miniseries uh, uh-huh. originally. It was cut down. So it's really hard to make something engaging, to get engaging performances in just such a small space. Yeah. And I think that the movie stays engaging. And I think that, that he does deserve credit for that. I, I, I definitely think he deserves to be nominated. We know my feelings about Tetsu, and I certainly would not argue with Sidney Pollack winning. But I, I don't want to continue to, to beat this drum since I did a couple episodes ago. But I think Spielberg wins. I think, I think Spielberg has to win. And, and the reason why, is because as you said, I think that E.T. Is, is just one of those hinge point movies mm-hmm. where I think that E.T. actually starts the children's movie genre of the 80s. Where right. as far as I'm concerned, I can't think of a, a movie where children are the main protagonist without really any parental interference uh, being right. a drive movie. And after that, there were a lot of movies like that in the 80s. And you know, we were lucky enough to be kids during that time and, and, and see a bunch of them. Yeah. But I don't remember a bunch of them before that. And so I think that, that Spielberg kind of started that genre of movies, which took off in the 80s. But when you're making a movie now where all of the emotional weight is being carried by children the directing job has to be you know the the challenge of that is so great yeah it's not it's not even a comedy i mean it's a drama there's great emotional weight in this movie so you're dealing with children and a puppet and you have to make this emotionally (laughs) resonant and believable and at no point in that movie do you not believe that et is real and that those children love him and that there's great emotional weight to everything that's happening. So I just think it, it, it's a phenomenal job of directing to, to make us care about kids and a puppet in, in, in a way that makes us cry. That, that, that's a really hard thing to pull off. And you know, he did it, I don't know how easily he did it, but he certainly did it as well as I've ever seen anybody. So I, I think that, that that's, you know, directing, you're recognizing the difficulty of the job. Right. And that, and that job was incredibly hard. And he did as good a job, I think, as anyone can do. So that, that's where my, my nod's going. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, like I said, it's what a task. And, and uh, prepped him to secretly coach Carol Ann and Poltergeist. Yeah, I, I could totally believe that. I think he, he, he just has, and, and people have written about this and they talk about the, they did a certain way of being able to direct children and, uh, uh, obviously, in the Angels and Temple of Doom, which he directed a couple of years after that, which has you know a kid actor with Indiana Jones, and, and that works. I think he's just got a way of, of uh, directing kids, which which is, is great. So uh, that that is is where I go. Yeah, I agree, and I think that kind of speaks to him. I, I think even even when he's directing adults, <laughs> there's like there's like a kid like quality of him that kind of comes through in the filmmaking. And maybe that's how he relates to kids so well in this and, and subsequent films. But uh, I think that's maybe what makes him so great at directing movies that have children in them or movies yeah. about uh, awe, like Close Encounters, whereas movies that are weightier, at least for a certain period of time, maybe he wasn't necessarily strong and had to grow into that. So Spielberg and Meryl Streep, they're in the, they're in the pantheon of, uh, of 80s movies. Did they make a movie together? Like, I actually don't believe that Spielberg ever directed Meryl Streep. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, there's still time. Um, all right. Let's go on to Best Picture. 
we'll wrap it up here. Gandhi takes home the prize with uh, Richard Attenborough. Um, the other nominees, E.T., Missing, Tootsie, and The Verdict. Um, I think I know where you're going to go with this. So let me hear it. Okay. I think this is a perfect example of why the Academy goes wrong. Because what ends up happening, and, and I read a, a couple of things about this, but, but I, I know it to be true regardless of, of what's been talked about afterwards. Uh, the Academy gets caught up in voting for the subject of a biography as opposed to a movie. Yeah. I think that everyone felt such great, again, there's that word again, reverence. I think the reverence for Gandhi as a person gives the movie weight that it may not deserve. And I think that all of these wins for Gandhi, which is, I'm going to pause and say, Gandhi won the Oscar for best art direction in a year where the Blade Runner was made. <laughs> so that's first off, where it's like they just yeah. throw in awards at Gandhi like it's candy. Like they, they don't even care. They see Gandhi on the thing, they go for it. It's like, really? Cinematography, all these, all these, every movie. I mean, cinematography, I think Das Boot uh, probably deserves them for cinematography because you're filming in a friggin' submarine and it's, it's yeah. an hours long movie and you have to find new interesting ways to film in a submarine. That's hard. Filming a movie in the vastness of India, I, I don't even start. I'm getting off topic, but the point is, I, I think that you get lost in voting for the subject of a movie as opposed to the movie itself, and right. that's how Gandhi ends up winning all these awards that it doesn't necessarily deserve. I mean, does anybody really look back at the '80s and think of Gandhi anymore? Does anyone really watch it? You're gonna sit down and watch a three-hour movie about Gandhi? I'd probably just read a book about it, which would be more interesting to me. Yeah, it, it, I won't lie. It was a bit hard to sit through again. So yeah, a tight three hours and like 10 minutes or something. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I mean. It's like, there's so much reverence for the, for the man that they, they don't want to cut anything. And it ends up just being pretty drawn out, but also surprisingly rushed. Is it? So it, it, it's just strange. Um, so, so no, I, I just think that's another thing where the, where the Academy loses the thread of what they're actually voting for and, and ends up picking something because of the person as opposed to the actual movie. Yeah, they love an epic. They love an epic, they love a movie about a historical person. They, they, it just clicked all those, it checked all those boxes and yeah. all those boxes are bad. Like it's just, uh, it, it, this was the Academy is completely falling to, to type and what you expect them to do, which is disappointing. It is. Uh, so what do yeah. we have left? We have three, we have four other movies that are actually better than Gandhi in my opinion. <laughs> I agree. Verdict is way better. Missing was, was really engrossing. And look, to me, it's it's a, a neck and neck race between Tootsie and E.T. Yeah. So I would have no problem with either one of those movies. But I, I'm going to have to say E.T. was the best picture. And then the reason for tons of reasons, the ones I just mentioned, uh, of, of being able to, to pull that movie off, which could have easily devolved into just like a silly children's movie which yep. we've seen many of, you can see how easily that can happen. Uh, it, to me, it created an almost new genre of movie. So it's just one of those, as I said, it, it's what I call a hinge movie where it, it opens up something that really hadn't been there before and, and, moves, and moves the 80s into a completely different direction. I mean, besides the fact that it was, it, it, unlike a lot of movies now that win, I mean, it was one of the most, it was the most popular movie of 1982, but a movie for children that is just as much emotional resonance for adults 
which is incredibly hard to do. Yeah. To make a movie that adults and children will care about in, this, in the same way. I, I just, and I think when you think of the 80s in general, but especially when you think of 82, you think of E.T. It's the movie that you think of. Well, I think of Rocky Three. I was going to say, I think yeah. of Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Most everybody else thinks of E.T. And, and I, I just think it, 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 yeah, it wins as far as I'm concerned. It, it beats out Tootsie by a nose. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, um, both amazing movies. And I think everything you said is right on. And uh, it, as you're saying that, it made me really think about there were a lot of movies, or at least a handful in 1982, that kind of defined what would come after them. Um, E.T. possibly being the the loftiest of, <laughs> of those. But uh, yeah, I mean, this really seems to be a year that kind of set the pace for everything that followed in the 80s, um, which is fascinating. And that's not something that I that I thought about before we went into this. So it was really cool to see that unfold. And yeah, in the last and, episode, we talked about how you know Goodfellas kind of started the 90s in terms of yeah. filmmaking. And I think the year of 82 is really kind of when the 80s started. It's yeah. when all the, all the types of movies start to shift and we get the beginnings of all the things that we're going to see all throughout the 80s. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at um, because what a decade. And I don't even know if this year really, even though these films are sort of setting the table for everything later, I don't know if it's really that indicative of what the decade was. I mean, I, I have to look at some of the other Oscars for the for the decade, but um, yeah, this just feels like a special year, and and well, I don't know I if it's it, matched. Yeah, I don't think I think in in terms of the year, as far as quality goes, I, I agree with you. But I think when we talk about in terms of what it starts, and not necessarily just the Oscar movies, but a lot of the movies from '82. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just kind of start where we're going in terms of lots of movies with children as the protagonists. Right. Lots of lone wolf action movies. Lots <laughs> of. Uh, so so I think that there's a, a lot of that where, where you get the beginnings of, of all that stuff. But it, but in terms of, of the Oscars, I mean, the Oscars just keeps Oscaring along, doing the same things throughout the 80s. I think the, in the 80s, they end up being, at least in the beginning of the decade, they're, they're kind of out of step again. They're just obsessed with epics and, and uh, yeah. those awesome kind of movies. And I, I think that they're missing a lot of what's actually going on in the 80s. Yeah, I think it's just older Oscar voters, you know, like uh, people who may still be in the Academy today, <laughs> as, as uh, we learn. But um, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. It was a fresh time. I mean, it was uh, a time when, a lot of new things were happening and uh, sort of coming off the seventies and, and gaining momentum and sort of underappreciated. I think a lot of the things that, that uh, should have been recognized. So that's yeah, kind of the way it goes. That's why we're here. Right. That is why we're here to remind people that uh, Gandhi was, was a lot. And, and, and said, <laughs> it said, it just kind of reeks of self-importance. It just really yeah. does. This is a disclaimer at the beginning it thanks people at the beginning of the movie as opposed to the end of the movie, which I've yeah. never even seen before. It's like, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. You're just telling me, you're telling me how I should feel about this movie before it even starts. Right. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's like, we made this 
we know it's great. So here's how you should enjoy it. And you will enjoy it or else. Or, um, or you hate Gandhi, right? It's like, it's just, it's just a movie, right? Why are you pro-violence? You don't like Gandhi? Yeah. Although, you know, this, this came out in the Reagan era. So that might've been a feather in your cap if you were, uh, if you were right. pro-violence. So, um, but, but that's the thing. Like Gandhi was so beloved in a year when Rocky three and first blood were just killing it at the box office. So that really shows you what the audience was thinking, uh, a, a diverse taste in the audience, but not the Academy. Right. But the number one movie at the box office that year was E.T. E.T. Yeah. So. Yep. But Rocky three did pretty well. Yeah. Rocky three need, needs its, its own podcast. So we, we could talk about that for days. Um, yeah. So listeners look for that on our Patreon page. Um, all right. So that's the Oscars. Um, some good picks, some bad picks. On the a lot, lot of hours spent watching these movies. A lot of long movies. Yeah. We need we'll to do again. some years that have shorter films. <laughs> you want to watch the year, movies of 82? You got you better set aside, you better go on vacation and uh, set some time aside to watch these movies. I mean, it was, it was a real feat of endurance to, and we did this in a week. I mean, I I didn't watch a couple of them that you probably did, but uh, I still logged a good 15 hours of watching films in the last, I don't know, five days, four days. So I'm glutton for punishment, so I did my best. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there were a couple things, guilty pleasures, we call them, that uh, obviously didn't make the Oscar cut, but uh, we're still pretty good. So, well, do you have any guilty, guilty pleasures. pleasures? I mean, they're not necessarily good. They're just things that we enjoy. I mean, that makes them good to me. You know, that's, that's, even the worst film, you know, if I enjoy it, it's a good movie. So did you have anything that, that jumped out at you as you revisited this year? Oh, I did. So so what what were my guilty pleasures in, in 82? Well, I mean, not then, of course, but now. Uh I would include Creepshow probably in, in that list of pleasures. Yes. Uh, I I'd like that movie a lot. Um, so that one, you know, borderline guilty pleasure. But but I, but I recommend Creepshow. It's a good horror movie. Uh, but my my true guilty pleasure, I'm I'm gonna have to go with the Beastmaster. Beastmaster is the classic <laughs> guilty pleasure movie. Oh uh, man, I was not expecting movie. that. It was on HBO all the time in the 80s. It was. And it's like a, and it's basically a poor man's Conan the Barbarian. Right. Which is weird because Conan the Barbarian is a poor man's version of something else. It just, <laughs> so it, it's like a a really poor man's version of, <laughs> of a much better movie. But it had Mark Singer in it, who ends yep. up being he, which was also uh, huge for me. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Some of those sword epics. That, that I, I probably watched way, way more times than I should have when I was a kid. And, and I'll still watch it every once in a while now. I feel like if you want a really good representation of, of what those early 80s kind of movies were, you could you could do a lot worse than The Beastmaster. I mean, Tanya Roberts is in it. It was just one of those women you would only know of if you lived in the 80s. I'm with you. I mean, that that... There were a lot of movies like this around this time, <laughs> I have to say. Um, just and it was, you know, it was kind of like the beginning of uh, 
of Canon films and, and, you know, cameras were smaller, so more people could make movies and they just weren't good. And uh, there were a lot of not great films starting to pop up, but they were all still super fun. I mean, that, that that's kind of where I lived in the 80s. Um, yeah, well, I think that you also have to keep in mind that this was the beginning of being able to watch movies at home as well. Yep. I mean, HBO and, you know, Betamax and VHS start to take off around this time. So yep. you can now go to rent movies and, you know, HBO showing the same 10 things on a loop because they only had access to so many movies. So that's kind of how guilty pleasures are formed. There's these movies just kind of inform your life, whether you want them to or not, that are just there and you find yourself watching them repeatedly. So that helps all of these genre movies as well. Movies that probably would have disappeared in a different time now end up becoming movies that just stay with you. Yeah, thank goodness, too. Uh, so you mentioned things being on a loop. Uh, well, did you have um, did you have any other guilty pleasures that you wanted to talk about? I have just one more. Okay. Which also fits into this theme. Which was, I think you're going to take mine. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. I might have taken it then. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I want to hear. I'm going to know if we're on the same page. Swamp Thing. Yep. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Always on HBO. Always. And directed by Wes Craven. That's right. Which I didn't yep. even know. I actually had no idea that he directed yep. Swamp Thing. Just a fantastic film for an eight-year-old. Oh my God. Adrian yep. Barbeau. Uh, you know, great special effects or, or makeup, I should say. Um, just boy, oh boy, what a what a fantastic film to see every day on HBO. It's like the uh, the rake scene in, in that episode of The Simpsons where, where, you know, you watch it a couple of times, you like it, then you watch it five more times and you think it might be terrible. And then by the 20th time, it's, it's a cinematic masterpiece. That's right. And and. Uh, I saw it 20 times, probably within like three months because it was on so often. And that's not even half of the number of times they showed it. Yeah, exactly. Well, since you took that, I'm going to say one that I think, uh, maybe not even a guilty pleasure. I think this is probably a pretty well-received film. Um, but I'm going to go with Paul Schrader's remake of Cat People, which okay. is, uh, I revisited not too long ago because uh, I've gone on a Val Luton kick, the, the producer of the original Cat People in 1942, and, and uh, just wanted to get back to this version of it, just, just to compare the two. And, and uh, boy, it's just a fun movie. I mean, it's ridiculous, of course, but uh, it's, it's edgy, it's fun, it's dark. Um, and it has Ed Begley Jr. in it at one point. So it's a great cast. Yeah, John Larroquette, <laughs> Natasha Kinski, of course, in the lead, Malcolm McDowell, and, and John Hurd, who we've actually been seeing quite a bit of as we do these Oscar shows. Um, but yeah, just a remake of the 1942 original, grittier and darker, thanks to Paul Schrader, of course. But um, that, that's my total guilty pleasure. Yeah, but I don't feel that guilty that movie. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. I, I just remembered that I do have one more. Okay, which is actually the guiltiest of guilty pleasures. Okay, uh -huh. I think this this is like the 
ultimate guilty pleasure movie. Also on HBO all the time. Airplane 2? No, not Airplane 2. <laughs> it's not very good. Yes. Zapped. Zapped with Scott Bayo, right? Scott Bayo and Willie Ames. And Willie Ames, yep. And Scott Bayo plays a kid who ends up getting these telekinetic powers to move things with his mind. And of course, uses it to open women's shirts because what else would you do? It's 1982. This is 1982. Every comedy had women's open shirts. And <laughs> Scatman Carruthers is in it. He plays, oh. he plays the guy that works at the school. Uh, just really beautiful peak 80s garbage, which is just watchable forever. Uh, so bad that it's good. Even the music in Zap, I enjoy so much so that uh, my wife bought me the soundtrack Zapped for my birthday like five years ago. Wow. And it's on LP because I don't even think they made it in CD because why would they? Who the hell would have bought the soundtrack Zapped on CD in the 90s? So it was the album of the soundtrack Zapped. Wow. Yeah. I have to say I'm stuck at Scatman Crothers because... Yeah, and Heather Thomas and like <laughs> Heather Thomas... If anybody wants to go back and see how popular Heather Thomas was back in the day, she had a poster that literally everyone had on their wall. Oh, yeah. Uh, and she was in it. So just a, a wonderful uh, 80s movie. Man. So a wonderful I mean, but Scatman Crothers goes from working with Stanley Kubrick in 1980 to working on Zapped. Yeah, with whoever the hell directed Zapped. Who knows? Zapped by a 12-year-old kid. I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> not much, not much directorial work there. Wow. That yeah. So it was uh was directed by Robert J. Rosenthal. One of only two films he directed, the last film he directed, uh, the first being 1978's Malibu Beach. Mm. So yeah, not that a, seems like the bookend of a career. Yeah, and yeah, and so does Malibu Beach. I mean, that's uh <laughs> He did produce in the line of fire in 1993, though. So that is hysterical to me. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole with this guy. This guy's last directing film was Zapped. His first producing role or his first producing credit was Zapped Again, which was straight to video in 1990. And his second and last producing credit is in the line of fire. <laughs> what a career this man had. Okay, I think we need another special episode where we find this guy and find out what his what happened to him because that's pretty fascinating. Robert J. Rosenthal. 82 and 1990. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, He's just trying to get zapped again off the ground and he just couldn't get the funding for it. So he decided to produce it himself. I, I don't. He really did nothing between zapped and zapped again. He has no credits. Um, yeah, I think this is kind of going off topic a little bit and maybe not. Uh... <laughs> this is as far from the re-Oscar as one can possibly get. Yeah, but I think uh, maybe maybe some kind of Robert J. Rosenthal honorary Oscar for disappearing will be uh, in, a, in a later episode. So uh, we'll put that in our pocket for now. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap it up and let's talk about what we're going to do next week. So I'm picking this one. And I want to do something that's big. And, and, and this was one of arguably one of the best years in film, 1970. Hopefully you don't mean long. No. Well, I haven't checked the running times of these films, but uh, I'm pretty well versed in them myself. So hopefully 
they won't require as much viewing time in the next week. But uh, yeah, 1976, tremendous year for film. And I think there are some controversial Oscar picks, but really there, you know, it, it's such a tight race because there are just so many good things that I thought it would be fun just to kind of look at everything and see, you know, maybe they got it right, or maybe it could have just like, you know, we said this year, it could have easily gone in another direction. So uh, I think it'll be a fun year to do. And I'm really looking forward to revisiting some of those films. That's what we have on deck for next week. Um, and the music's starting to play us out. So that's our cue to get out of here. Mike, thank you as always. And uh, we will see you next Thanks, everyone. Week. Yep, see you next week. And you guys can uh, watch Zapped in the meantime, if you can find it. Probably Long live Robert J. Rosenthal.